You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Fisher, and I would like to welcome each and every one of you to um, our Writers Live series here in the beautiful African American department. So it is my pleasure to have Mark Steiner introduce our guest writer, Chris Hedges. Hi. So um, this is my uh, same pleasure to do this this evening. I, often, I love coming to the Enoch Pratt. Full disclosure, I, he was on the board here for a long time, no more. Uh, and when they called you this, I said yes, because I've interviewed Chris a number of times, uh, read most of his books, and I think he's one of the most profound thinkers we have here in the United States, in the world today, talking about our condition. Um, and as you know, Chris Hedges is an author, New York Times, was head of the Middle East Bureau, won the Pulitzer Prize, has been a war correspondent, uh, and is now a, really a cogent thinker about, not, not now, has been a cogent thinker about why we are where we are and the state of our society. And so this latest book, and I only have the, um, the, uh, the advanced copy. I have to get a real copy. That's America, the Farewell Tour. And Chris, good to see you in Baltimore. Welcome yeah, to Baltimore. thank you. Good to have you. So what we're going to do is we'll start, we'll have a conversation standing, which is not bad. Um, and then have a chance for the audience to interact and have questions. Uh, and I will, you should come to me or I'll meet you somewhere. I should come up here and I'll hold the mic for you while you're talking. Um, and uh, Dwayne Gladden is from Real News Network and they're shooting this tonight so it'll be taped and be on uh, the network sometime in the next day or two. Uh, and so uh, that's why I need you to come up and talk into the mic rather than yell from the audience because it just doesn't look good on television or whatever this is we use these days. So let's get into it. So one of the things that um, when we think about this country, and we often, many people don't think of this country as empire. They really don't. Um, but clearly we are. And you made some really interesting analogies in the book about Rome and Greece and where we are and Britain and what happened there. So let's, let's define that first. This notion of why we're empire and what that means and what, you, what stage do you think we're in? Right, so the, the difference between the United States and the European empires is that we first colonized our own country through uh, the campaign of genocide and the theft of Native American land. All the way, and then of course, the seizure of one-third of the state of Mexico. Until under Polk, uh, we created, in essence, the configuration of the modern United States. The last great battle with Native Americans, and it wasn't a battle, it was a slaughter, was Wounded Knee in 1890. Uh, by 1898, we are projecting American power abroad uh, through the Spanish-American War, Cuba, the Philippines, and Stephen Kinzer wrote a good book about this. Uh, but there was a huge debate in the United States at the time uh, with some unlikely allies, Carnegie and Mark Twain, arguing against the projection 
of empire abroad and what empire always does to a republic. Uh, and it was a close fought battle, but one that the anti-imperialists lost. Uh, and at that point, we took on all of the characteristics that are common within an empire. Uh, a centralized bureaucracy, because empires need centralized bureaucracies, which usually operate in secret and without accountability, and accrue to themselves greater and greater forms of power at the expense of the citizenry. And this is a common characteristic of every empire, including the Athenian Empire. So the power of the polis, uh, which was a direct democracy, not a representative democracy, as we have, and Aristotle would have argued that all representative democracies where you pick someone to represent you are really a form of oligarchy, diminished in terms of its power uh, until, in the words of Thucydides, the tyranny that Athens imposed on others it finally imposed on itself. Now that is as empire continues to, or the mechanisms of empire continue to consolidate power. And of course, much of that power is embodied in a military apparatus that, as our own is, beyond control. There is no civilian control anymore of the military, of the Pentagon, it's not even audited. Um, and under the Trump administration, there isn't civilian oversight anymore. Um, and so what happens is that the military expands, empires by nature expand uh, until they can't expand anymore, until collapse. So you have now, I would argue, we are in the late stage of empire with all of the common characteristics of late stage empire. Uh, so you are attempting to maintain a military as the late Roman Empire attempted to maintain Roman legions of one million soldiers, legionnaires, uh, who eventually had political power to the point that after the assassination of Commodus, they were actually auctioning off the post of empire, of uh, emperor. And uh, so you expand beyond ultimately your capacity to sustain yourself. And you carry out what historians call uh, micro-militarism, but that's really just uh, uh, feudal and deeply misguided military overreach. You saw it with the Soviet Union attempt to uh, dominate Afghanistan. You saw it uh, with the, in the Athenian Empire when they invaded Sicily and their entire fleet was sunk and most of their soldiers were killed. The empire crumbles. You saw it in 1956. So you had had a slow descent of the British Empire after World War I. It culminates when uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser nationalizes the Suez Canal, and the British intervene militarily and have to retreat in humiliation. Uh, 
that, that is the end of the British Empire and uh, the pound sterling is dropped as the world's reserve currency, which plunges Britain into a very severe economic depression. So there are familiar patterns that empire takes with, of course, different variations. Uh, and I would argue that the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, and I spent seven years in the Middle East, I was the Middle East Bureau Chief for the New York Times, was the greatest strategic blunder in American history. 17 years of warfare with no end in sight. I mean, the Taliban controls more territory now in Afghanistan than when we invaded. Iraq as a unified country is shattered and broken and will never be a coherent country again. The balance of power in the Middle East was irrevocably altered because it was the balance of power was between Iraq and Iran. Iran is ascendant. In fact, Iran largely controls the government in Baghdad. Um, all of the uh, stated goals of intervention in the Middle East have been upended. For example, uh, there was a call for regime change in Syria and the flooding of arms, many of them from Libya, another disaster, another failed state that we created, a flooding of weapons uh, into the hands of quote unquote moderate rebels, which is a tautology, uh, and then the rise of ISIS and Al Qaeda in Iraq. And uh, you have a situation where you're carrying out bombing runs in Syria on behalf of Assad and on behalf of Hezbollah, which is fighting along with the Syrian troops. I mean, every kind of, every goal gets upended and, uh, you know, it's kind of Orwellian. <clears throat> You're the enemy, yesterday's enemy is today's ally. Um, and meanwhile, within the homeland, uh, the Infrastructure uh, is crumbling. Public services are deteriorating. All of the bulwarks of an open society, including a system of public education, are degraded. Um, and a citizenry is not only impoverished, and one could argue that at this point 70% of the American public is now struggling at almost subsistence level, um, they don't even have $400 to come up with in case of a financial emergency. And they are now being preyed upon by uh, corporate forces, business interests, uh, because in late empire, and this is Marx, he got it, in late empire, or the late stage of capitalism, you have uh, corporations which can no longer, uh, especially after deindustrialization, garner the kinds of profits they made in the past. So they cannibalize the very institutions that make a capitalist democracy possible. Um, you now have Eric Prince uh, trying to privatize the war in Afghanistan, uh, Betsy DeVos is attempting to privatize, and Arne Duncan wasn't much better 
honestly, but is this drive to privatize education. Why would you privatize public education? Well, it's because the federal government spends about $63 billion a year on education, and the hedge fund managers want it. Uh, why are we privatizing 70% of our intelligence work? Uh, and as I open the book, as Mark knows, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, at a time when the city is on the verge of declaring bankruptcy, and they're selling off all of their city assets, their sewer system, their parking authority, their utilities, and, uh, and they sell it off to corporations who then jack up the prices. So everything becomes more expensive for the citizen, and I think the per capita income, it's in the book, in Scranton is about 45000 a year, average. Um, but what happens three, four, five years down the road when there are no assets left to sell? So we have replicated, if one goes back and looks at disintegrating societies, and in particular disintegrating civilizations and imperial powers, we've checked everything off the list. And Joseph Tainer in the Collapse of Complex Societies who did a study of 24 civilizations, if you want all the details of the list, as did Gibbon. I mean, Gibbon wrote uh, The Fall of the Roman Empire as a warning to the British Empire. And with that physical and economic and political deterioration, because in late empire, a cabal seizes power. In, in Rome, it was the ruling families. Uh, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it was a decayed aristocratic uh, elite that blundered into Sarajevo after the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand and his wife Sophie and precipitated World War I and, of course, the extinction of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, along with the Kaiser, was doing his best to destroy Germany at the same time as well. And the Tsar and the Tsarino were sitting in the Winter Palace having seances and reading tarot cards. Um, so there is a moral degeneration that accompanies the physical degeneration. And it was the moral degeneration that I wanted to focus on in this book. The pathologies that arise in a decayed culture, which we all know, suicide, opioid addiction, gambling, sexual sadism, uh, hate hate groups, the rise of hate groups. This is what happens in a society that seizes up and doesn't function. And all books have templates, and this one did, mine did, this one, I, I did a book with Joe Sacco called Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, written out of the poorest pockets of the United States, Camden, New Jersey, which per capita is the poorest city in America, the coal fields of southern West Virginia. And the model for that book was Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, by James Agee with the photographs by Walker Evans. This was Emil Durkheim's great study of suicide, where he went and looked at the social factors that led people to commit suicide. And that's coined the term anomie, which is alienation, dislocation, hopelessness, despair. And of course, the, the, the reason that I wanted to examine these pathologies, which meant that I was with heroin addicts with white hate groups in mortal fear that someone in the group would Google me. Uh, 
I wrote my gambling chapter out of the Trump Taj Mahal before I knew Trump was even going to announce that he was running for president. Um, because until we address that enemy, that dislocation, things will only get worse. And therefore, for me, Trump is a symptom of the degeneracy of the country. He's not the disease. And until we address the disease, even getting rid of Trump will not get rid of the, the moral deformities that have seized and will continue to seize power. Where do I go now? I think it's important to kind of focus in on why you focused on how the society is degenerating all your chapters take each one focus on a specific point so the question becomes though societies like this while they may be falling apart the empire may be falling apart the most, I, I agree completely with an analysis of where we are but there's also if you look at like say, say the city of Baltimore where we're in now the single largest occupation in Baltimore is security it hires more people than anybody in the city most of the employees and security operations in Baltimore are black, not white, from the poorest neighborhoods. Um, and part of how people hold power is through security. And you've seen it throughout the globe in all the work that you've done. Uh, no matter how much the dysfunction happens, it begins to fall apart. So the, the, so the question becomes, so you have this dysfunction. Part of the dysfunction is you don't have kids. The kids, as you write about, um, you can't, you see, let me step back. There's a theme that ran through this, whether you were in Anderson, or whether you were in Camden, or whether you were with the, the women who were firing heroin in New Jersey, or wherever you happen to be in this book, and they may have vastly different views of who they are and of America and of race and all the rest, but there's this common thread running through of the, of the destitution of their lives, right? But then there's a power that can remain in power despite the crumbling. Crumbling doesn't happen overnight. So when we talk about empire crumbling, we're not talking about something that could just fall apart in front of our eyes. And you look at Trump, and it was interesting, you, in the beginning of the book, you, you talked about Commodus. Did I say that correctly, right? The, the Roman emperor, and, and compared him to Trump, which I kind of loved, it was really interesting, and maybe you start drawing things about Commodus and Trump together. But, so, but again, that empire kind of transformed into a different empire, taken over. So, I mean, so, so what, what is this... What does it say about where you think we're going? Well, I mean, it's good that you raise the issue of privatized security because that is also characteristic of late empire. So it's privatized security for who? For the elites. Right. So uh, with the breakdown of policing and the rise of grotesque income inequality, which is the worst we have ever had in our history, Worse than the so-called Gilded Age. Worse than before the 1929 crash. You have this, the seizure of wealth by speculators. And there actually have been Roman historians that have blamed the collapse of Rome on the, the equivalent of ancient speculators. And what they do is... Uh, they attempt to make money off of money, which is called gambling, 
Um, and this is also a characteristic of late empire, where you have, in, in our case, the financial crash of 2008, and many economists who are a lot smarter than I am, Nomi Prinz, Richard Wolff, Michael Hudson, and others, and are talking about the next crash being far worse. The New York Times about three or four days ago, I don't know if you read it, had an editorial that was pretty grim about where we're headed economically. So they, the crash goes down, cities, their pension funds are reduced by 40%, uh, people who have IRAs, I mean everybody is hit, uh, subprime, we all know subprime mortgages, what happened to people uh, being locked into uh, mortgage deals that uh, increased rates that they knew they couldn't pay, or that I'm talking about AIG and that, you know, or Goldman Sachs knew that couldn't be paid. And so the system goes down and they're bailed out, I don't know, four, seven, there's different numbers, trillion dollars. They lent that money at roughly 0% interest. You had central banks in Europe that were actually at a negative interest. It means they would pay you a small fee to borrow money. So they're full of liquidity, but they're not creating jobs. They're not manufacturing. They're not producing in the traditional way. And the money has to be paid back. So they extract it from the flesh of a now beleaguered and depressed population. That's how you get, uh, you're late on your credit card, suddenly you owe 28%. That's how you get students in this country with almost $1.5 trillion worth of debt. And there was a very fascinating article in the Sunday New York Times in the Week in Review where the writer talked about the fracking industry being the next dot-com bubble because the investment in fracking is not for actual profits. In fact, most of these corporations are operating at a, a loss. They are for projected profits, which is, of course, what got us into trouble with the dot-com crash. The problem is that having lowered interest rates to near zero, the elites don't have a plan B. When it goes down this time, there's no mechanism. There's no mechanism left. And you talk about how empire crumbles. Alexander Berkman actually wrote a very good essay about this. The facade of empire remains. I mean, the facade of the Roman Republic remained. It still had a Senate. It still, but internally, it was a form of tyranny. It was autocratic. The citizen was irrelevant. And we have created in our failed democracy exactly the same facade. So what we live under is not a democracy. We live under a system that the political philosopher Sheldon Rowland calls inverted totalitarianism. And by that he means it's not classical totalitarianism in that you have a, a party come in and change the iconography and structure. You still have elections. You still have supposedly fealty to the Constitution. Uh, 
you still have supposedly a press, but internally the co all corporations have seized all of the levers of power to render the citizen impotent. And if you don't believe me, go over to K Street and take a look at who's writing all the laws and regulations. And it's, that's true on the state level as well. I mean, one of the things that I know Mark, we were speaking about this before, that distresses those of us who come out of the old world of print journalism is what's happened to the press. CNN is 24 hours of burlesque. They, uh, it's not news. I mean, Stormy Daniels is not news. And Stormy Daniels' lawyer is not news. And Omarosa is not news. And, you know, Chuck Schumer's response to Donald Trump's tweet is not news. It's reality television. Masquerading is news. It's entertainment all the time. And that's what Woodward's book is. It's, it's a courtier who is delivering an account of the gossip of the court. But it's not news. It, it's, it's, it's a, you know, they're all living in Versailles and telling us which mistress Louis XIV has taken into the bedchamber. That's not news. News is what's happening to poor people in this city. News is out of control police violence. News is mass incarceration, which is a form of social control. We have the most, the largest prison system in the world. 25% of the world's prisoners. We are 5% of the world's population. Why? Because these corporations moved manufacturing overseas and poor black and brown bodies were not generating revenues on the streets of Baltimore. But if you put them in a cage, they can generate fifty or $60,000 a year. People say, oh, the system's broken. No, no, the system works just the way it's designed to work. The same way convict leasing was designed to work. And that, you know, the Dostoevsky once said, if you want to understand what a society is about, look in their prisons. And what he meant by that is look at what that society does to the most vulnerable. And what do we do to the most vulnerable? For me, prisons are the, the utopian corporate state. Wages, 22 cents an hour. If you work in Louisiana, it's four cents an hour. You work in Georgia, you're not paid at all. Alabama, you're not paid. And we're talking about a 40-hour work week. Every job in prison is done by the incarcerated. The laundry, the cooking, the cleaning, everything. The management. If you were to pay those workers even minimum wage, the entire system would collapse. And that's why we are in the midst until September 9th of an unreported but immensely heroic civil rights struggle on the part of men and women inside these prisons who are engaged in work stoppages, commissary boycotts, because everything in prison is privatized. The phone company is privatized. The commissary medical is privatized. Money transfer, food, our mark. It's, it's, it's an industry that now is in billions of dollars. And as the leaders of the Free Alabama Movement says, the only way to break slavery is to stop being a slave. And I teach in a prison, so I see it.
But it's important to look at where they're going because now we have one million incarcerated people who work for for-profit corporations. And we're talking about big Hewlett-Packard, Victoria's Secret, McDonald's makes their uniforms in prison. Because these prisons say, look, you don't have to go to Bangladesh and pay 32 cents an hour. You can come to California and pay the same wage and they can't strike, they can't organize, they can't complain. You don't have to pay them for six days. You don't have to pay Social Security. And if they're a problem, we put them in solitary confinement. And this is what unfettered, unregulated capitalism will do to everybody. And Carl Polanyi wrote the great book, The Great Transformation, about it where he said that when a society loses capacity to honor the sacred, he's an economist, he uses the word the sacred, when nothing in your society has an intrinsic value beyond a monetary value, including the natural world, then you exploit it until exhaustion or collapse. And the difference between what's happening to us as an empire and what happened to empires in the past is that because of climate change, when we go down, the whole planet's going to go with us. So, uh, and just, just, just to pick up one quick point for everybody, the, the, what, what you were talking about, it's, it, it was a prison strike. It started on August the 21st, which is the anniversary of George Jackson being murdered. And it ends in, on September 9th, which is the anniversary of the beginning of the Attica Rebellion. Both in 1971. Right. And uh, so that, that's, the strike is taking place, and we're covering it. There'll be, I'm doing interviews with, with people inside this coming Friday and others. And, so it'll be, it'll be pretty and read Heather Thompson's book on uh, Blood in the Water. Yeah, that's a great it's book. It's a really, she won the Pulitzer amazingly, but it is a brilliant, not just a study of the Attica Revolt, but how, it, how the elites responded and used it to demonize people of color. It's quite in a powerful and really uh, brilliantly researched book. And a lot of the files she used uh, after she published the book were immediately disappeared. I wonder how that happened. Yeah. Um, so let me, I want to get the audience in here. So let me just try one of the questions here, then we'll come back to the audience. I mean, get to the audience. I mean, so if you want to have a question, I'm going to ask you to come up to where? Here? Better than here, right? So come over here, and I'll get to as many people as we can during the course of time. So, um, all right? Yeah, then you come all right, cool. Um, all right, so let's, you know, I was thinking about one of the people you quote in the book, but one of the people that you love a lot is James Cone, the, the theologian. Who we just lost. Yes, yeah. who we just lost. Um, as you said, I think he's one of America's greatest theologians. Oh, he's hands down the most important the contemporary theologian in America. Yeah. So... I've raised his name for this reason. I was thinking about, this might be a little stretch, but this is what I was thinking. I was thinking about him and also your critique of Antifa in the book. Um, you all know what Antifa is, right? Everybody knows who we're talking about? Okay, just making sure. Um, so I, I, I raised it because there has to be a response. You know, you can't just, I think about Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman, the famous line is, you just keep going no matter what is going on. The dogs are coming after you, you keep going. See the man with the gun, you keep going. You just keep going. You don't stop. Um, so let's just talk a bit about what response, what response is. Because, I mean, I think that clearly things are falling, 
But I'm also one that will refuse to believe that you have to give things up without a fight, uh, whatever that form that fight takes. And so what, what is that? What is that? Uh, when you take all the things we, we learned from your book, let's talk a bit about what the response is. Well, Cohn is actually a very good person to cite because That's why I did it. he's cognizant of the long history of resistance right. among African Americans, um, much of which has been consciously erased by white historians. Uh, I mean, you know, there were a series of, the, the, the great fear in the slaveholding South was that slave rebellions, that word of slave rebellions would get out. And there was a great slave rebellion in 1712 in New York where the slaves actually captured the armory and got the weapons. And then the British mobilized a huge militia. And there was this prolonged battle. And then they saved the last bullet. And every single one of those slaves committed suicide rather than go back into slavery. And there was a, an account of the trial. And um, I, got, I got it at Princeton University Library. And I, of course, naively thought that maybe there would be voices of those who were accused of aiding and abetting. And the only voices in the trial that were allowed to be heard was the prosecution. There was not one. There were African Americans who were tried of involvement but they were never allowed to speak. So Cone, you know, Cone's power, and he, he uses that term uh, coined by Reinhold Niebuhr, sublime madness, uh, that, and all rebels have it, and it has nothing to do with, with what's practical or even what will work. It, it, it is a moral imperative to resist because freedom comes in a penultimate way through that act of resistance. That is perhaps the only freedom you will ever know. Richard Wright said, you know, uh, music, spirituals, work chants, that's what we had in place of freedom. And I come out of, I am theologically trained. I graduated from Harvard Divinity School. My father was a minister. But I, I come out of Calvin. I come out of Niebuhr. I, I have a very tragic view of human nature and only amplified by the time I spent as a war correspondent in El Salvador, Nicaragua, Gaza. Uh, I was in Sarajevo during the war. And I think, you know, with the kind of rapid and immediate emotional highs and lows of American consumer society, um, we've lost touch with the moral or ethical responsibility to resist. You know, in the end, I don't fight fascists because I will win. I fight fascists because they are fascists. And the only hope we have is to physically defy radical evil. 
with the understanding that within our lifetime, everything that we fight for may get worse. Empirically, everything around us may prove that, at least ostensibly, that everything we did was in vain. I once asked Father Daniel Berrigan how he defined faith. And he said, faith is the belief that the good draws to it the good. Even if everything around you shows otherwise. The Buddhists call it karma. But I have lived in and reported from societies that have disintegrated. I mean, Bosnia or El Salvador. When I got to El Salvador in 1983, the death squads were killing between 700 and 1,000 people a month. And their bodies were often mutilated, which was also true in Bosnia. And I watched these magnificent figures rise up on behalf of the oppressed to defy the oppressor. And they arose in every religion, every culture, every ethnicity. And having spent 20 years abroad, they are my nation. They are my community. Um, and I, as I said, spent seven years in the Middle East. And part of my fury is the way the demonization of Islam has just been mainstreamed within American society. So I'm going to go over here, but I'm way over here. Please line up if you want to get a question in. Um, I was thinking about you, when you write about we have, we live in a, we're living in a world where we now have an economy of consumption, not production. That's right? Charlie Mayer, the Harvard right, historian. Exactly. That's right. how he describes right. it. That you quoted. So the question, though, I, and, and so things are, bad. I'm not going to say that. I mean, things are really miserable in where we are, and they're really, we're in a dangerous place, as we talked about earlier, in the other room, in the making room. But so do you have, I have to ask this question, so do you have no hope or, or, or reason to have hope that, that it gets better, that we can't win, that it is just resistance? And I, I'm not sure I even believe in winning and losing. I think that's a mis but But the idea that, that resistance only leads to your own death, resistance doesn't lead to the kind of change we need to have. You know, I mean, is it, is it all John Brown? Well, you can't use the word hope if you don't resist. And the, the, the problem is that I, I think we have to look at resistance to these forces, and in particular the forces that are rapidly destroying the biosphere and the ecosystem on which humans depend for life as forces that must be fought as they were fought in Standing Rock, and I was at Standing Rock. And, and to, to allow, I remember when I was, in, I was spent a lot of time in Zuccotti Park in Occupy, and I got there the first week, and I said to these kids, don't let them tell you that you're irrelevant, and don't let them define for you what success is. I mean, all of the great rebels and prophets in American society, Martin, Malcolm, Sitting Bull, Emma Goldman, 
by the standards of the elites failed. And yet, it is holding what Auden calls that ironic point of light that flashes out wherever the just exchange their messages. In the belief that resistance is about the good drawing to it the good. So I had dinner with George McGovern years after his, his campaign in New York. And I told him that I had spent the summer of 1972, I was 15, working on his campaign. And that in Miami, when he gave his acceptance speech, we were actually on a family camping trip in New Mexico in the desert. And I sat in the front seat of my father's Impala waiting for him to give his speech, which was late. And as soon as he finished, the car battery went dead. My poor dad had to walk four miles the next morning. <laughs> and McGovern said, actually mentioned losing 49 states. And I said, yes, but you never betrayed that 15-year-old boy. And no one's saying that about Richard Nixon. I watched in, uh, I covered the revolutions in uh, Eastern Europe. I was in Prague uh, with, every night in the Magic Lantern Theater with Václav Havel. And in the city were posters of a young Charles University student named Jan Pollock, who to protest the overthrow of Dubček by Soviet forces, which invaded the country, went to the central Wenceslas Square in Prague, lit himself on fire. Four days later, he died of his burns. His funeral, which was attended by hundreds of Charles University students, was a non-event on the state media. When his grave became a shrine, uh, the state exhumed his body, cremated his remains, and told his mother she couldn't rebury the ashes. One week after the communist government fell, 10,000 Czechs marched to Red Army Square and renamed it Jan Pollock Square. That's the power of resistance. I was in Wenceslas Square that December. It was snowing. And the great Czech singer, Marta Kubasheva, Mark comes out on the balcony. There are 500,000 Czechs in the square. In 1968, she had sung the anthem, a prayer for Marta, which was the resistance anthem. When the Soviets came in and installed the pro-Soviet regime, her entire recording stock was destroyed. She was banned from the airwaves. She spent the intervening years working on an assembly line at a toy factory. And when she walked out on that balcony and began to sing the prayer for Marta, every check in the crowd knew every word. That is the power of resistance. But if we don't resist, we can't use the word hope. And it's beyond us. It is sublime madness. It extends beyond our lifetime. The forces that we face now pose the greatest existential threat to the human species in the history of the human species. And there is no internal or external mechanism that will stop them. It's up to us. And I'm not the only one in this room to have children. 
And if we fail, and we may, let those who come after us at least say they tried. Thank you for all your writing. Um, it's really inspiring to have somebody state so well what we need to be waking up to. Um, and my question, Mark kind of hit on, which is where have you seen the positive forces? Where do you see hope? Um, from my point of view, I feel that we all need more agency so that we're not representative, represented by a few. And I see that coming through economies. And I, I wonder whether local economies are needed to keep us from being colonized by external forces? So that's one question. But the other is, where in your travels have you seen the most hope in communities building that cohesive community that could succeed? Well, I would say Standing Rock uh, was, for me, a kind of model. Uh, it had a deep spiritual dimension. Uh, it was indigenous-led. Um, they were quite cognizant that these were sacred forces on which we depend for life. Um, they were disciplined, they were nonviolent, they were sustained, and they suffered horrific repression. Over 700 arrests, beatings, uh, people being uh, attack dogs being unleashed on the crowds, constant surveillance, constant infiltration. And you know you're having an effect, and this was under Obama, you know you're having an effect when the state responds. They weren't doing that to the Women's March. And that's the model. I mean, I, I covered the fall of the Stasi state in East Germany, which was the most sophisticated severity, security and surveillance state in human history until our own. And at a certain moment in September of 89, Eric Honecker, the dictator, sends down an elite paratroop division to fire on the protesters in Leipzig, which were now getting crowds of about 70,000. And they get there, and the local communist officials refuse to deploy the paratroopers in the streets. Honecker's out of power within a week. Nobody knows how corrupt and degenerate this system is better than the people who run it. And we, by, and this is, you asked about Antifa, this is my critique of Antifa and the Black Bloc, is that they play into the hands of the state who seek to demonize the resistance and to make people afraid of it. We are never going to overthrow this system and overthrow, I don't, is the word I choose until significant portions within that system defect. That's how revolution works, as Crane Brinton and Jeffrey Davies and other theorists of revolution have pointed out. So what brings down the czar? He sends the Cossacks in to quell the bread riots in Petrograd, and the Cossacks join the rioters. The czar is finished in a week. He's up running the disastrous war effort. They put him on a railway. He doesn't even make it back. He has to abdicate on a railway siding. Uh, as soon as the head of the armed forces in Iran in 1979 announces 
that the military, which was the fourth largest in the world, will not, no longer defend the Shah, who had fled, it's over. And that, so, it's, so in that sense, we are, the, our strength is, 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 the, is the fact that we speak a truth, an unacknowledged truth. And I think we're watching now, among the ruling elites, great fear. Because across the political spectrum, nobody is buying their ideology of neoliberalism, of corporate cap, nobody. Right, left, nobody. And so they are turning to the much more draconian and familiar tools of repression. Uh, putting algorithms, I mean, all of the left-wing sites that I write for that run my stuff are now hit with, by Google and Facebook and Twitter with algorithms that push us to the margin. So for instance, I write a column every Monday on Truthdig. You have, if you, if you had gone into Google a year, a year and a half ago and typed in imperialism, and I had written a column on imperialism, it'd be one of the things that would, now it won't appear. And so the referral traffic from impressions on Truthdig alone has declined from over 700,000 to below 200,000. Alternate, counterpunch, black agenda report, they've all been hit. And they've been hit because the elites no longer have a counterargument which is what abolishing net neutrality is about. So you've already pushed your capitalist and imperialist critics to the margins of the internet, and now they're seeking further to snuff out their voices because they don't have an answer. And they are ratcheting up forms of militarized control, militarized police, wholesale surveillance, um, Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act, which overturns the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act, which had prohibited the military from being a domestic police force. And as some of you know, I sued Obama in federal court over it and won. Uh, and then they denied me standing in the appellate in the Supreme Court. But, yeah. Sorry, I need a call. Sorry, I'll hold, I'll hold it. Okay. Uh, again, thank you. Uh, you mentioned our fealty to the Constitution. Do you see a possibility for a constitutional convention and... What do we have to fear from a constitutional convention? Well, yeah, this is Lessing. I, I don't get it. I mean, I don't get that as a mechanism. I mean, in fact, the, 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 uh, you know, the ruling elites and the elected politicians have been bought and paid for. Uh, this is the whole concept that somehow we're going to reform the Democratic Party. Um, look, uh, Schumer, Pelosi, all these figures wouldn't exist without Wall Street. Um, their power comes from the fact that they funnel the money of Wall Street to the other candidates. Um, they, you know, however uh, shaky the ship of state becomes, they're not about to give up their first class accommodations, uh, even if they bring it down. I mean, this is just characteristic of decayed ruling elites. Um, and we've watched, I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that uh, the Democratic Party stole the primary election from Bernie Sanders, and have ever since the election spent all of their energy uh, purging progressives and anyone who might support Sanders from within the DNC. Um, so it doesn't function. I mean, the Democratic Party doesn't function as a political party. It's not the Labor Party. The base is irrelevant. People are trotted out as props for the convention or something. Um, but they have absolutely no say in policy and no say in legislation, and that's been statistically proven by Gillen, uh, a professor at, was it Northwestern and Princeton? Yeah. yeah. 
uh, we don't count at all. So, uh, you know, we're going to have to build alternative. We're gonna, to pit power against power, we're going to have to build alternative organizations. A constitutional convention? Yeah, but see, what, what the courts have done, so the courts have been used by corporate forces to essentially overturn constitutional rights by judicial fiat. And the perfect example of that is Citizens United. So they rule that unlimited dark corporate money is the right to petition the government or a form of free speech. Where have the courts been? I love all these you know, strict constitutionalists. What about the right to privacy? I mean, I wrote a book on the Christian right a few years ago, which I think is an important book because the Christian fascists are rapidly filling the ideological vacuum of the Trump White House. Um, and the uh, Christian right, like the Federalist Society, they are, they're selective literalists. They pick out what works to buttress their ideology. But it's so cravingly dishonest. Uh, and we're about to watch Kavanaugh, who's a per, you know, poster child for this, go to, to the Supreme Court. Um, so yeah, I, I, don't, I think the system is irredeemable. Uh, I think that the, uh, you know, the, the, the only hope is, as I saw in Eastern Europe, is that we begin to mass. I mean, once I was in Alexanderplatz in East Berlin with half a million East Germans. And there just comes a point when you can't shoot half a million East Germans, partly because so many people in the ruling communist apparatus uh, fully understand how decadent the system is. I mean, one of the things we saw in Zuccotti is that most of the egregious assaults were carried out by the white shirts, the officers. And the relationship between the blue uniform cops and the uh, occupiers was often quite cordial and friendly because these guys are also working class. And they're paid $37 an hour to be rent-a-cops in their off time to stand in the lobbies of places like Goldman Sachs and watch hedge fund managers and commodity traders who are making obscene. So uh, there's a, there is a, you know, the, the system is far more frightened and far more decayed, and we talked about the facade, than those of us on the outside know. So we have time maybe one or two more questions? You, two more. Okay, I got it. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, it's kind of depressing, really depressing <laughs> to hear all this negative. Uh, if capitalism is not the answer, and, um, then is, is socialism the answer? And what about Putin? What do you think of him as a... Right. As a, as well, a, Putin's an autocrat, um, and, and the Russian Putin. oligarchy is as kleptocratic as the American oligarchy. Uh, oh, is, social, is socialism the answer? Yes, socialism is the answer. I'm a socialist. Uh, I, uh, I lived in Switzerland, which is probably not a textbook example of socialism, but we paid 50% uh, of our income into taxes. A senior public school teacher earned as much as a doctor. Uh, we had the best health care system probably in the world. 
Uh, we all paid, it was actually privatized, but heavily controlled by the government. We all paid 350 francs. There were not homeless people on the streets. The mentally ill were not cast onto heating grates or locked into prisons. It was a civilized place to live. And if we look at the Scandinavian countries in the 1970s in particular, they eradicated poverty. Uh, they created a society where everyone had a chance. Um, and uh, I, I'm not a textbook socialist in that sense. I can live with a heavily controlled and regulated capitalism, which is what happened in the Scandinavian societies. Uh, but once those regulations are removed, as they have been, uh, capitalism does what it is designed to do, which is to maximize profit and reduce the cost of labor. That's what it's designed to do. If I was running a hedge fund, I would only hire Marxists because they get it. They understand what capitalism is about. Uh, well, I knew that when I was younger. I got it's exploitive, uh, <laughs> and it's meant to be. Uh, and capitalism, which is a, you know, a, a, a venal belief system, only justifies itself with what it's against. Because really, there are no virtues to capitalism. The, the, the human qualities capitalism celebrates are the qualities of psychopaths. Um, and so, yes, I'm talking about socialism. I'm a socialist. Uh, and I admire Eugene V. Debs uh, and all of the great socialists uh, who fought alongside him in the Wobblies and the old CIO and the old Communist Party, which we have erased from our history. Uh, there was a strong American radicalism, which the state went to war with, and we we don't even we don't the, the, the we, we don't we never discuss certainly within the mainstream. Really, when was the last time you ever heard the word capitalism on MSNBC, except for the five minutes they put me on on Sunday? You're not going to hear it. Uh, and yet, it's fundamental in, in terms of understanding where we got to, where we are, and where we should go. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a socialist. Sir? Yes. You have spent a lot of time in the Middle East, and you have specifically spent time in Palestine, understand the conflict, and you spent a lot of time in Gaza. There are a number of people here who are active in the BDS movement including me. Um, could you comment on your, do you think we are making any progress in knowledge or change of policies? And that's my question. Well, I'm a strong supporter of the BDS movement. Um, and it's the only mechanism we have left. And there's been tremendous progress, especially in Europe, but not only in Europe. And that's why the Israeli government uh, is seeking to criminalize any kind of BDS activity, um, purging student activists. I spoke at Northeastern, and they had outlawed students for justice in Palestine. Um, and it's why they are making alliances with the Christian fascists, because that second and third generation of the American Jewish community is not. In fact, I speak at a lot of colleges. And half the students in Students uh, for Justice in Palestine are Jewish. And so you have seen in Israel a very similar process of decay. 
as to what's happened in the United States, including the rise of Netanyahu, a slightly more intelligent demagogue, um, but certainly as venal and corrupt and racist. And um, so Israel was once a socialist country, and it now has one of the greatest income inequalities in the world. Um, Israel, especially after 1967, became a militarized state in the same way we did, with all of the corruption that comes w with an unchecked military power within your midst. Um, so I, I think there's clear evidence that the movement has made progress. Uh, Israel has devoted tremendous amounts of resources and money uh, because they're terrified, as they should be. Almost time to sign books. We're getting to that point. I this is a local bookstore. I have to, don't buy your books on Amazon. Um, <laughs> if you're not going to read the book, that's fine. Buy it for someone else. But you've got to keep these institutions alive. You have to. You have, you're on community radio, right? It's. I'm on my own podcast now. They didn't want me there either. Okay. <laughs> but, but, you know, these last readouts, they're important. The, the, you know, independent bookstores, Independent radio, independent media, it's all being snuffed out. So, um, you know. It is being snuffed out. It is being snuffed uh, out. We, we're going to end, but Fraser, I have to let Fraser say something. He has a question. He's a colleague, print journalist, one of the best we've ever had in Baltimore. And I, won't, and I won't try to take the microphone away from you. Don't take my mic. <laughs> I gave you a mic once. Yes, you did. You did, and I enjoyed it. But that's beside the point. <clears throat> you make a, great, uh, a fantastic case about the disintegration of our institutions and our economic system. Uh, and yet you're, you're here speaking and hoping to be heard. So there is a point, actually, I, I think you might agree, in trying to save newspapers and, and whatever. I mean, you know, ink on paper may be dead. And, and not coming back. So the question is, what do we replace it with? And I don't see any uh, recognition of the need to do that in our society. Yeah, clearly we have to go the model of The Guardian where newspapers have to become nonprofit. Um, you have the model of the BBC or the CBC where everybody pays a small percentage of their taxes that goes into an independent media organization. Um, one of the most frightening, and I'm sure for you as well, uh, phenomena within modern society is the uh, anemic quality of what's left of newsprint. It's a shadow of what it was, and the utter irresponsibility on the part of commercial television, MSNBC, CNN. I mean, we talk about fake news. I mean, the whole Russian bot thing. No, no. Fake news is called Fox News. It's called Breitbart. Uh, I mean, we've been pummeled by this stuff, funded by the most retrograde elements of American capitalism. And the fact that Fox is now even accepted as a legitimate news organization. So, I mean, newspapers, I'll tell you a funny story, OK? So Knopf, some editor at Knopf got this idea that they needed a book on the American press. So they called up Len Downey the former editor of the Washington Post, and asked him if he wanted to do it. He said no. 
So then they called up Joe Lelyveld, who had just left as the executive editor of the New York Times. He said, no, I was the third person on the list. I would have loved to know who drew up that list. And so I dutifully wrote my take on American journalism, which horrified Knopf. Um, I mean, in fact, they got it and they said, well, okay, we're, we're going to give it to an editor who's going to take out all the negativity, <laughs> which wasn't going to work. So then they wanted my next book, Days of Destruction, Days of... They said, all right, all right, just keep the money. We're not going to print it. Well, I mean, I took it to another publisher. So, I mean, Sidney Shanberg had a great line. He said, you know, newspapers, they may have not always made things better, but they stopped things from getting worse. Uh, because at least you had eyes and ears in the courts, in the city courts, in City Hall, in the... And when the, that, that monitoring, however... Uh, flawed it may have been is gone, then these people can steal like they've never stolen before. And that's what's happened. So I am, like you, in deep despair. Uh, I mean, what happened was the monopoly that newsprint had to connect sellers with buyers is gone. And the internet destroyed it. 40% of newsprint revenues were classifieds. And once that fell out, with Craigslist and everything else, you cut newspaper revenues almost in half. Now they don't need us. They all, we, you know, we, we give all of our information to them, and what we don't give to them, the, the black box industry gets for them. Um, so they can target us. Uh, and so the only, and all these sites, including the one I write for, like Truthdig, that once thought that they were going to sell it, it's never worked. It's not worked. Because the sellers don't need us. And so the only hope is to build nonprofit entities. But we came to it late. I mean, there was a moment when the New York Times stock was about 40 or $45, and the Sulzberger family decided to buy back, I don't, know, I don't know how much, but a lot of it. I don't know if it was a billion, I don't know how much it was. But I'm thinking, at that moment, somebody should have had the foresight to build, create a foundation. Um, and societies that don't, I mean, the, 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 the great uh, contribution of newsprint was that it kept dialogue rooted in verifiable fact. And that's not a small thing. Because the, it's the press, the courts, and academia who are tasked within any society of determining truth at least truth insofar as we can determine it, and building all civil discourse around that. The courts are finished. Academia has been bought off. Princeton is just a giant corporation. I've taught there. I mean, most, half of the people on these trustee boards should be in prison. Um, and, the, and, and, and that arbiter of journalism is gone. Is gone. And so that is a recipe for totalitarianism. Once it's how you feel that determines what's true. Once uh, facts and opinions are interchangeable. And I, I, like you, I mean, I love newspaper work. I fell in love with it. I was in a high school. I went to the old Hartford Current. So this would have been like in the 70s. It was a newsroom, mostly full of men smoking cigars, on typewriters, and it was like, 
uh, it was, I remember as a high school kid going and watching at 2 in the morning the presses at the New York Times, which used to be in the bottom building, watching them roll out the newsprint and going, someday I'm going to work. And I did work at the New York Times. <laughs> I, I loved it. Good. And one of the great ironies is that newspapers were a place for people to go when there was no other place to go. Well, the important thing about newspapers is that they were fundamentally democratic in the sense that you didn't traffic, and we're all guilty of this, to a particular website that reinforces your belief system, whether it's left or right. A newspaper, and, and with newsprint, that's why I still buy newsprint, I still buy the New York Times in newsprint, is you flip through it and you get, you read something or you're challenged with something or there's an opinion writer who you may not normally agree with, like David Brooks, um, <laughs> who has something that day to say. And you don't get that by always going to a site which reinforces, it ghettoizes you. So anyway, we just made a huge pitch for newspapers, but. And why not? Why not? <laughs> Thank you so much. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.